is a, an American attorney, and she has represented clients in numerous high-profile and complex trials, um, and has often won them. Um, but many of us who are lawyers know that sometimes you lose them painfully too. Um, but she specialises um, in an area of law that's very uh, familiar to me. She spe specialises in the defence of national security cases involving terrorism and espionage and, um, uh, and has a lot of experience involved in white-collar crime. Um, she's done um, over 100 jury trials in the United States and, uh, um, and it's a very different system there. To do as many jury trials as that means that you're a busy trial lawyer. Um, for people in Britain who do them back to back um, um, over a lifetime, perhaps it, it, it works out a bit more. But um, Linda's a very experienced trial lawyer. And uh, she'll tell you about some of her cases rather than my telling you about them. I've got to know uh, Linda because uh, she has um, become uh, uh, an associate member of my own chambers in London and, uh, and has been a, a very great collaborator on a number of different things, um, particularly through um, the links that we have. Um, on cases like Guantanamo Bay and some of the national security cases across our borders. Um, she has lectured on civil liberties and terrorism trials at universities and legal institutions um, here and uh, all across America. Um, the Nobel Peace Committee and the Norwegian Bar Association invited her to address their lawyers and their parliamentary members, um, uh, all in the wake of 9-11. And uh, she has been an expert in the field of anti-Muslim bias. Um, in the American legal system. So I have great pleasure in introducing you to Linda Marino, very distinguished American lawyer. Are you going to turn me up now? Thank you. Uh, but as a trial lawyer, I don't need much amplification. <laughs> Thank you, uh, thank you to the Baroness for inviting me. I, I do have the privilege of being a member and associate tenant of her distinguished chambers, and I am up counsel to the Constitutional Law Center for Muslims in America. Yes, there is a law center for Muslims in America. That is the state of where we are. I come from the great country of the United States of America, which is the only country that was born perfect, but we're striving to be better. <laughs> and the cases I want to share with you sharply test that goal of a more perfect union like no other cases have in the last 50 years in my view. These are the civil rights cases of the 21st century. Let me be clear, and you might have noticed in the press, that we in America are in a classic civil rights moment. And certainly, the treatment of Muslims puts us there as well. The prosecution of Muslims criminally, civilly, throughout the immigration courts, as we've seen in the Trumpian era, in which the immigration ban, as, as some of you might have heard about, has had a very corrosive effect on our system of justice all of which has resulted, arguably, in a separate system of justice in America, what some voices call Muslim justice. Muslim justice, I would argue, occurs when a thumb is placed on the scales of blind justice in the name of national security. It occurs when the United States government overclassifies materials 
using the classification system as a sword against the accused and not as a shield to protect the national security of the country, making it extraordinarily difficult for lawyers to prepare for the defense. Muslim justice also occurs in the, when the United States government communicates to the judge that to dispense real due process and true justice would harm our national security and harm our country. The inhumane treatment of detainees is pushed, violating all sorts of domestic and international laws. The use of the extended pretrial solitary confinement, or we call the SHU, the Secure Housing Unit, where you find virtually every Muslim who's been indicted in one of these cases is in the SHU today. The supermax facilities that we proudly boast about in the United States, which are really concrete graves, or the deprivation of uh, <clears throat> any sort of uh, humane treatment occurs in what we call the ADX or super mass facilities, which are housed mainly by Muslims. These are the severe measures that aren't applied to the general inmate populations, but systematically applied to Muslims. And in that general inmate population, I'm talking about uh, persons who've been convicted of multiple murders, persons who've been convicted of savagery against children, they are treated better than even pretrial detainees of Muslims. The criminalization of otherwise protected speech, something that we boast about in the United States in our First Amendment. But when it comes to Muslims, speech and protected conduct through the expansion of material support of terrorism laws all contribute to the uniquely unfair ways that Muslims are treated. The criminalization of charitable giving, an essential right, an expression of religious freedom, again, so triumphed in the United States. But when it comes to Muslim charities, it's quite a different story. And we're going to talk uh, in a bit about one of those cases. And the growing and continuing bias against Muslims in jury trials, inflaming the passions of jurors, and capitalizing on the climate of fear. Jurors who are supposed to decide cases without passion or prejudice. But this climate of fear is rampant in American trials. We have something in America called the terrorism enhancement. And the application of the terrorism enhancement uh, pushes the guideline sentencing laws, usually to life in prison. Those terrorism enhancements are uniquely applied to Muslims who are charged with certain crimes. We continue to see the normalization of these exceptional measures. And if, in effect, the United States government, when they walk into an American courtroom argues that everything involving Muslims is a potential 9-11. And that our constitutional principles 
the government argues need to be manipulated or modified or worse, ignored. But none of this has made us safer in the heartland. So as for me, I've been a criminal defense lawyer my entire career. I began right out of law school as an apprentice to the great iconic lawyer, Mr. Leonard Weinglass, who Helena also knew. Uh, you might have heard of Mr. Weinglass. He defended the Pentagon Papers uh, trial, which was a seminal case which dealt with the disclosure of classified materials to the New York Times dealing with the U.S. military involvement in Vietnam and the lies that the Johnson administration told to the American people about the war. Sound familiar? This was a case precedent and prescient about WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden. Lynn also defended the Chicago 7 trial of anti-Vietnam War activists with inciting a riot uh, during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Uh, Leonard was what many people would have called a movement lawyer. Little did I know at the beginning of my career that all of that and his experience and his mentorship would prepare me for the trajectory of my practice decades later in a post-9-11 America. I'd like to share some of those cases uh, with you that exemplify what we face in the American courtroom representing Muslim clients, or the hated clients, if you will. And I'll start with the very first case that I defended, which was a case that really exemplifies all of these issues I've just mentioned and, and the worst treatment of Muslims by the judiciary and in the courtroom. This was the political prosecution of Dr. Sami Al-Aryan. Dr. Al-Aryan uh, is a Palestinian activist. He was a tenured American professor at a university in South Florida. Before September 11th, Dr. Larian had suffered a lot of negative publicity in his town of Tampa, Florida. Uh, after the Oklahoma City bombings, there were press accounts that Dr. Larian actually was behind those bombings. There, of course, there was never any evidence of that. But really, what Sammy was and continues to be was an effective advocate for Palestinians and an ardent critic of Israel. And he was also a critic of the utilization of secret evidence in courts that led him to lobbying both Democrats and Republicans, including then-candidate George Bush, against the use of secret evidence. Everything changed in February 2003. He was indicted, along with others, in a 153-page complaint charging him with material support of terrorism and charging him with the various murders of people in Israel. Now, as a footnote to this, when he was arrested um, as an insight into the way the Department of Justice viewed then, and I still think, views the First Amendment, Dr. Larian, when he was arrested, uh, was a professor had a library of thousands of books. And the FBI uh, seized all the books, thousands of books, and in fact used some of those books in the trial against him. 
Actually, they, didn't, they wouldn't use the whole book, but they would use, say, a, one of the table of contents pages to show that Dr. Larian was reading provocative and inflammatory and jihadist materials. So the FBI goes into his house, and they seize all these books, and guess what they find in his house? They find a gun with ammunition. And you know what they did with that gun and ammunition? They left it. They left it alone. And they seized, thank you so much, my dear, and they seized all the books, which led me to tell the press that obviously the Department of Justice views the First Amendment far more dangerously than the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. Now, <clears throat> Dr. Larian was detained without bail and remained in isolation until his eventual release a number of years later. I knew, I knew things would be different. Now, by the way, when I represented Samuel Larian, I had been a lawyer for 20 years. And I had represented uh, defendants accused of capital murder, all, all sorts of uh, defendants, all sorts of people accused of terrible crimes. But this, this was going to be an eye-opener for me. The first time I went, I went to see Dr. Larian, and I was in the attorney room waiting for him to come in with his legal documents, I see that they had manacled him behind his back, bent him over, and put the documents on his back and let him in to the attorney room like a meal. There were many signs on what was to come with the prosecution of Dr. Larian. When he was indicted, John Ashcroft, perhaps some of you have heard of John Ashcroft, our illustrious attorney general at the time. He was a great friend of David Blanket, our home secretary at the time. <laughs> That's probably not a good thing. Mm. Um, this was the same John Ashcroft who had a press conference and said that my client, Dr. Larian, was the financial wizard of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is a designated foreign terrorist organization in the United States. So that would be a crime if he was a financial wizard. Of course, this changed throughout the course of the trial. He was demoted. He was no longer the wizard. Uh, he was demoted because they couldn't prove any of that. But in terms of, as a Muslim, what happened to him, this attorney general, the same John Ashcroft, in commenting on Islam, said the following. Islam is a religion in which God requires you to send your son to die for him. Christianity is a faith in which God sends his son to die for you. So we knew what kind of justice to expect from the Department of Justice and how they were going to treat this particular Muslim. The government claimed that the prosecution of Dr. Larian was the seminal test of the Patriot Act. At the time, one headline reported that when Samuel Larian goes to trial, America goes to trial with him. And this was true. On his behalf, we decided 
to run a classic First Amendment defense, and that Sammy had the right to advocate and assert his criticisms of Israel, of US foreign policy, and his criticisms of the utilization of secret evidence in trial. Now, the First Amendment in this particular trial um, was sometimes forgotten by our judge. The United States government called an expert to testify about the anti-Semitic speech and writings of certain Palestinians. And so we decided in our cross-examination that it was fair game, that we wanted to show that the invective was on both sides. And we wanted to use photographs of graffiti that we had obtained of racist and Islamophobic writings by Israelis on the homes of Palestinians in the occupied territories. Phrases like, and pardon me, get, a, get out of our land, sand nigger. Uh, my colleague, an African-American attorney, wanted to cross-examine the expert on these photographs. But the presiding judge decided that we weren't allowed to do that, ordered the jury out, cut off our cross-examination, suppressed our photo exhibits, and accused us of playing the race card. There was a lot of uneven-handed treatment of evidence in this case, but some of it was pretty remarkable. Let me tell you about the dream evidence the United States wanted to use against Dr. O'Leary. A co-defendant of Sammy's had had a dream about him. And it was a bad dream. In the dream, Sammy did some bad things. And the United States wanted to introduce the evidence of this dream against my client. Now, I assure you, there is no provision in the American rules of evidence in the federal code on how to deal with dream evidence. <laughs> and at the time, I petitioned the court for an appointment of a dream analyst if the government was going to use this against my client. And it, you know, it, it'd be funny if the stakes weren't so high. Um, and that evidence was admitted against my client. What wasn't admitted against my client, which was equally as laughable, was about a month before the trial, and again, focusing you on this stuff happens only in the trials of Muslims. The United States invited the defense lawyers to a demonstration in the Everglades in Florida. Here's what they did. They took a public Florida bus and they blew it up. It was a controlled explosion and they videotaped the bus. And they sought to use the video as a demonstrative exhibit against Dr. Alarian, arguing that this is what jihadists do against Israelis and the jury should see that. This was a case that had race, religion, and politics all over it. The government flew in dozens of Israelis who were 
survivors of violence or eyewitnesses to violence in Israel. They flew over an Israeli lab technician to show the jury how a suicide vest looks embedded with nails. And he stood up in front of the jury and shook it at them. And the jurors, of course, recoiled. In the end, we did not cross-examine a single one of these witnesses that the government offered against Sammy Alary. Because our defense was that Sammy had chosen a different path, one of advocacy, not one of violence. After a six-month jury trial, the jury refused to convict Dr. Larian of a single crime and acquitted him of the most serious charges, including the murders of Israelis. And here, Muslim justice didn't work because the jurors told us that they rejected the politics and the issue of religion, that the jurors didn't want to come into a courtroom to cast a referendum on Israel and Palestine, they were there to determine if a crime had committed and Dr. Larian had committed it. So they were faithful to the principles of the First Amendment. And through a series of subsequent events after that trial, Dr. Larian is now a free man living in Turkey, writing, teaching, and advocating like he has always done. That wouldn't stay for long under the present regime. Mm -hmm. We'll see. One can be hopeful. One has to be hopeful as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, the second case I want to tell you about is the Trial of the Holy Land Foundation. Uh, this case, unfortunately, stands for the starkest example of what I call Muslim justice. Uh, the, the, the Holy Land Foundation was an Islamic charity, wildly respected and uh, uh, successful in raising tens of millions of dollars in zakat donations, uh, mainly for the widows and orphans and children and the infrastructure in Palestine. These charitable donations were then distributed through what they call zakat committees, which are just charitable committees on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza. These committees uh, were deemed to know best what the local need was and how best to distribute the resources. And so the resources were distributed. They bought ambulances, school packs, medicine, food, shelter. But you can imagine, given the United States foreign policy on Israel, this was never, um, shall we say, a very safe charity. And certainly after 9-11, it was not going to survive. The charity was shuttered. The millions of dollars of donations were seized. And all of the principals of the charity were indicted, arrested, and detained. Now here's the theory of crime in this case. See if you can follow this. The United States conceded that every penny that the Holy Land Foundation raised went to the needy. It went to the children. It went to buy medicine. It went to the schools. But 
The United States didn't like how the money was distributed. And so these zakat committees, the government said, were associated with or controlled by Hamas, which is a designated foreign terrorist organization. Thus, that is the criminal conduct. So they said that the, prin the principals selected certain zakat committees that were associated with Hamas. Now, the issue of shuttering any charity um, was critically important to charities around the world. The Red Cross, the, the, the Red Crescent, many, many charities were watching this case. Because if it could happen to the Holy Land Foundation, it could certainly happen to them. At its worst, unprecedented, <laughs> which means it's never happened before in an American courtroom. In the Holy Land Foundation trial, the government put up an anonymous expert. And this particular witness, his identity was withheld from not only the defendants, but from the defense lawyers, certainly from the jurors, and from the judge himself. Never happened before, hasn't happened since. Now, he told us, though, to call him Avi, and we did. As an expert, Avi testified on the central issue in the Holy Land case, which was that these Zakat committees were controlled or associated um, with Hamas. So, I cross-examined Avi. Avi, had you ever visited a Zakat committee? No. Had you ever spoken to any of the recipients of aid from these Zakat committees? No. Did you take any polls? Did you do any field studies of these Zakat committees? No. How about, did you read any books on Zakat committees? And he said no. Really, I thanked him for his candor, because he could have lied about all of that. And how could we know, since we didn't even know who he was? <laughs> so the question is, so how does he know that certain Zakat committees were controlled by Hamas? And his answer was the subject of some comic relief in this tragic case. He said, I can smell Hamas. <laughs> Because according to the Israeli Defense Forces, who allegedly seized things from these Zakat committees, including keychains and photographs of certain Hamas members and posters, the air of Hamas was everywhere. Well, <clears throat> the first jury was not impressed with Avi's canine abilities. <laughs> and refused to convict anyone of any charge, which means they hung, and they couldn't reach a decision, and there was a retrial. Trial number two, different judge, different jury, different rulings. Different hobby, too. He came back a little more rehearsed and prepared. In the second trial, everyone suffered convictions. Now, the most egregious example of Muslim justice is the kind of sentences 
that they got. My client, Ghassan Alashi, the chairman of the board of the Holy Land Foundation, convicted of funneling money through a charity that the jury accepted was associated with or controlled by Hamas, but also accepted that all the money went to the needy. The judge gave my client 65 years in prison for feeding the wrong children and helping the wrong people. The government and the court, in our view, dispensed its own Muslim justice in treating aid to children the same as buying an RPG. Now understand, if you cannot raise money and donate money according to the principles of your religion, according to the principles of zakat and Islam, you cannot effectively practice your religion. And there have been a number of charities that have been shuttered in the United States, Islamic charities. Uh, this encroachment, you know, we don't see this encroachment of religious freedom in the arena of other charities. Let me give you a lighter moment where Muslim justice was not dispensed. I represented a gentleman <coughs> accused of being a Taliban and operating a secret Taliban cell in Sacramento, California. Who knew? Who knew they had the Taliban in Sacramento, California? Um, my client, along with his four sons, were accused of attempted murder. And so the charges were not terrorist related, but the press and the innuendo and the suggestions and the cross-examination by the prosecutor in the, in the case was all about the Taliban. So the, ta the taint of the Taliban was everywhere. But then something remarkable happened. On the night in question when this, these attempted murders were to take place, it turns out that one of the sons who was misidentified as being at the scene of the crime and aiding and abetting these attempted murders and assaults on others, it turns out that he was an aspiring model and was walking the catwalk hundreds of miles away. Who knew, I argued to the jury, that the Taliban had adopted a more tolerant and uh, expressive view of Islam, that it embraced its members who wanted to become fashion models. Everyone in that case was acquitted. And the politics and the stain of the prejudice that the government sought to impose on our clients was rejected. <coughs> In a classic First Amendment case, in my view, politics and not the law prevailed. Uh, this was the case of the Irvine 11. 11 Muslim students at the University of California in Irvine uh, decided to protest the remarks of the Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren. Now this was the politest protest I've ever seen. They actually had their remarks written on three by five cards. Can you imagine this? They stood up as he's talking, they stood up and they said, 
you know, Israel is an apartheid country. Thank you. And then they sat down. Or, you know, the Israelis are committing genocide against Palestinians. And then they would sit down. They were, um, uh, this was, in my view, one of the more disgraceful prosecutions. Again, especially reserved for Muslims and Muslim students on an American campus, which is especially troubling because we see this kind of prosecution and these efforts by the government against uh, students in university campuses around the, the United States. Two more cases I want to tell you about. Um, this is the most shameful display, I guess, of Muslim bias in our legal system. And I'm talking about Mohamedou Salahi, our client, uh, who uh, was recently released from Guantanamo Bay. On the team, led by Nancy Hollander, who is also an associate tenant of Dowdy Street Chambers, uh, we represented Mohamedou. Mohamedou is a Mauritanian who languished for 15 years in Guantanamo Bay without a single charge lodged against him, ever. Some of you may have heard about him through his novel, Guantanamo Diary. This manuscript was a diary of his first five years in Guantanamo. The government decided to classify the whole thing. We wanted to get it out. We wanted it published. So after a seven-year legal fight, most of it was declassified, and it was published. Became uh, a New York Times bestseller list. In fact, I know that The Guardian had a dedicated web page uh, to the diary. Mohamedou's case is one of the few cases that the government acknowledged the torture that was personally signed off by Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld beating, humiliations, threatening his mother, um, playing tapes of a woman screaming in the background, claiming this was his mother. Um, turns out the book is humorous, compassionate, it's not a screed. It was a, is a book embraced by his guards. It's a remarkable story. There are still people in Guantanamo I think there's about 40 or 50 left, uh, still fighting for, for their freedom. The last case I want to share with you is the story of my current client, Noor Salman. Noor is the widow of the Orlando shooter, Omar Mateen. Omar Mateen murdered 49 people and injured another 53 at a gay club in Orlando, Florida. Now, the case is pending, so there's a lot I can't say, but there are a few things I can tell you about this. Um, this is a very un-American prosecution. It's un-American because it is chosen to punish the family of the wrongdoer. They took eight months to investigate this case, and then they indicted her for aiding and abetting these murders and aiding and abetting ISIS an organization that she had not only no connection to, but according to the now former head of the FBI, James Comey, anybody hear about James Comey? <laughs> James Comey came out and said, uh, we find no evidence that Omar Mateen himself had any connection to ISIS. 
Nevertheless, the government proceeded against Noor. And I say it's un-American because, you know, a case like this can only be brought, in my view, against a, a, a Muslim. Punishing the family of the wrongdoer is a practice that the United States has condemned around the world. You know, we have, as an example, um, Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof was the white supremacist mass murderer who slaughtered nine African Americans during a prayer service at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Dylan Roof's parents were taken into custody. So Noor Salman is fighting for her life and we're we're fighting and hoping here for some real justice, not that kind of justice that's just dispensed to Muslims. In my closing remarks, you know, I, I wonder and I continue to wonder whether two airplanes and two buildings and all that tragic loss on September 11th changed our values whether Muslim justice really became the standard on which we bring and judge these cases. See, we're taught as lawyers, these values aren't supposed to change. These principles are the most important when they're the most difficult to apply. That when we protect provocative speech and fight against discrimination, we show our strength. Justice occurs when it can happen to you. So let me end by saying, it's a great time to be a lawyer in America. Um, I have two requests from my American colleagues, specifically to my British friends here. A lot of my American colleagues wanted me to ask um, in this Trump era, would you please take us back, hashtag adopt Americans. Um, no? Okay. On a more serious note, yes, I have a yes in the audience. Thank you. Uh, we need your help, we need your counsel, we need your amicus briefs, our judges listen to you, we have a common jurisprudence, I think this is the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. Um, we have been down this road before. We are still striving to be better, to form that more perfect union. Thank you.